This is Fordham Conversations. I'm Nora Flaherty. Last year, at about this time, I went on a tour of Civil War-era Lower Manhattan with historian Barnett Schechter. Schechter and I toured the Five Points area. That's the area that absorbed most of the Irish immigrants that had been pushed out of Ireland by the famine in the 1840s. Not long before the Civil War, you had herds of sheep and pigs were being herded through the streets. And things weren't a lot cleaner in 1863. I mean, you had people living cheek by jowl with these industrial uh, factories and living in terrible tenements, enormous density, a thousand people in a block where, you know, Fifth Avenue was was barely settled by the rich and the, the poor were living in incredible numbers in this tiny area of the lower end of the island. It's, it's really kind of enough to turn your stomach, um, just the way the sewage was flowing in the streets and the the offal from the slaughterhouses and children playing with the blood in the gutters and the infant mortality rates were just unbelievable. It was a kind of favorite place for politicians or for reformers, um, churchmen or other reformers to point to as kind of the great den of sin in, in the great metropolis of New York. It was kind of the worst of the worst. Um, and people used to get taken on tours through the Five Points almost as a kind of... Um, this sort of lurid uh, voyeurism uh, of taking people and showing them the, the terrible dance halls and bordellos and um, the people living in, in, in human conditions. Today, the Five Points neighborhood is gone. It was raised in an 1880s slum clearance effort. But horribly as they lived in their early decades in the city, the Irish came to have tremendous power in New York and to massively influence the city's culture. Now, it's true that St. Patrick's Day isn't until next Saturday, but here to talk to me today about Irish America and to make some of the links between those early Irish Americans from Five Points and the Irish America of today is Peter Quinn. Quinn's a third-generation New Yorker. His grandparents were born in Ireland, and he's the author of two historical novels as well as a former speechwriter for two New York governors. He's also a Fordham graduate. Quinn is something of an expert on Irish New York. In fact, he was a consultant to Martin Scorsese on the film Gangs of New York, which, as you might remember, took place in Five Points. He's also the author of a new book of essays called Looking for Jimmy, A Search for Irish America. It's out now from Overlook Press. Later on the show, we'll hear one woman's story of her father's favorite St. Patrick's Day song. But first, Peter Quinn, welcome. Thank you, Nora. It's nice to be back. Now, I have mainly known you as a writer of fiction, although you did used to be a speechwriter. That's me wh- fiction, too. Yeah. <laughs> Tell me why you've written this book of essays. Um, because the, the books that I wrote came out of my interest in history, the historical novels, and my, my interest has always been in history. So I just wanted to take a step back from novel writing and kind of take an objective look at the material that I had used in the novels. Before I did something else, I said, just let me, let, me, let me sit down and look over that experience. And I had written a number of essays over the years on, um, for American Heritage and Commonweal, the whole the New York Times. So originally I was going to collect those, and then I talked to my publisher, and he said he didn't want a collection of just stuff that I had published. So I wrote new essays for this book. I rewrote ones that were in there and uh, tried to make it a thematic examination not just straight history, really, because I try to be clear in the introduction that this a lot of this is memory. Just trying to go into my own experience of a family that arrived in New York in the Irish famine, 1847, and growing up in the Bronx and having no real sense of that history. And then coming here to Fordham and studying for a Ph.D. under Morris O'Connell, trying to 
plumb Irish history, and then coming back to Irish American history. Who am I? Where did we come from? I now live in the suburbs, live in Hastings. I have two children. And the kind of urban Irish experience that I came out of is really fading fast. So I just, you know, as somebody who's through it and watching it go away, I said, let me try to put down on paper what I remember and uh, what I've learned about it. So who is Jimmy? Jimmy is, you know, uh, you read about um, the whole stereotype of the Irish in the 19th century is Paddy. And Paddy is a railroad worker, and he's uncouth, and he lives in shanty towns. And that's kind of the image of, you know, Irish immigration. But I said there was actually a stage after that of people who who I think I embody them in three people in the article. Uh, uh, Jimmy Walker, who was mayor of New York, who was this incredible bon vivant, uh, also very cosmopolitan, urbane, Jimmy Cagney, who, who to this day represents you know so much of the urban Irish experience, and another guy, James Forrestal, the first Secretary of Defense, who was also he was a Jimmy who he wanted to turn his back on it all. He decided that he he went to Princeton and then um, Dylan Reed on Wall Street, and he didn't want anything to do with his Irish background. But it was in his face and his mannerisms he couldn't get away for. So uh, what I was saying is that. The formation of the American urban personality was highly influenced by these Irish-American archetypes. I, I refer in the book to this, you know, there's the, the great Irish-American movie, I think, is Public Enemy by with Cagney. And there's a scene in that where he's driving along in a automobile. It's supposed to be Chicago, but it's obviously L.A. But he sees Gene Hollow there, and he pops out. He stops, and he pops out, and he's incredibly well-dressed. And he uh, he does this little dance in front of her, and it's this great combination of musicality and menace. You know, it's it's come down into gangster rap. They love Cagney, and, and because he was defining uh, an urban personality, an urban way to act, an urban way to move, a kind of urban cool that we refer to today. And uh, that came out of what he saw in New York and the Irish neighborhoods where he grew up. And I think one of the reasons the Irish were able to do this was because they came out of, you know, if you look at the famine experience, they come out of the most primitive agricultural situation in Europe, and they don't have anything that they can use in the city. They go from the from like 1000 AD to the to 1900 in 6 weeks on a ship, and none of the stories they have, none of the behaviors they have are really any are useful. They have to invent everything when they get here. And that's kind of the, you know, I think the dynamism of that experience was in that invention. They also weren't people. They didn't have museums. They didn't have academies. Irish Americans are really woefully underrepresented, like the intellectual cosmopolitan circles of New York. But I think they kind of define the working class life, and I think a large part of their DNA is still in it. Even when when Italian gangsters started, like Frank Costello and things, take Irish names, it wasn't just to Americanize. It was also adapting that personality that he has the these these are the cool people. <laughs> um, well, gosh, I'm excited to be cool. Um, so <laughs> yeah, if, I, we never thought of ourselves as cool. You talked not just about Jimmy, but about a lot of other sort of stereotypical or iconic figures from Irish America or from how Irish America was perceived. You mentioned Patty a little bit, but let's talk a little bit more about who Patty is. Yeah. Well, I, there's a cartoon reproduced in the book. It's a famous cartoon by Thomas Nast, and it has on one side, it's, I think, 1876 one, and it's the ignorant black vote in the South, and he has Sambo. He has the caricature of African-American, you know, kind of beaten hat and thick lips and this 
simian image that whites use for racial stereotypes of African Americans. And it's a perfectly balanced scale. On the other side is Patty. It's the Irish guy who is, also looks like an ape, also has a batted hat. And Nass thing is, you know, this is the perfect balance, the ignorant whites and ignorant blacks. And, and Patty represented that in the 19th century. If you, there's a wonderful novel, The Damnation of Theron Ware. It's about a Methodist minister. It's a 19th century novel. It's really worth reading. It's in, called Octavia in New York. It's really Utica. If you want, ever want to read the perception of who Patty was, just read this book. He talks about these. It, it, it's another thing that the Irish were perceived as natural revolutionaries in the 19th century. You know, if you, if you look at the Molly Maguires, the ancient order of Hibernians was like Al-Qaeda. That's what they thought of it. And Patty was this disruptive person who, in American popular culture, kind of became half funny, you could make fun of him, and half threatening. He was, you know, a stereotype that stayed with other ethnic groups in cities. Immensely entertaining, but also watch out because he can be dangerous. And what, one of the things the Irish were able to do, which was denied to African Americans, really, was they were able to take that image. If you look at fighting Irish was a kind of condemnation of the Irish in the 19th century. By the 20th century, you have, you know, the fighting Sullivans, as the, the five brothers who go down on the ship, and the fighting Irish at Notre Dame. They were able to take their image and make things that had been negative into positive because of their influence on popular culture. Now, you say that at some point, Patty becomes Pat? Yeah, Pat becomes more respectable than Patty. One of the things of the Irish immigration is that they became more respectable as uh, Italian, Slavs, and Jews poured into the country. Then Anglo-Saxon America suddenly found them less threatening. You read racial descriptions of the Irish in the middle of the 19th century that they were regarded as another race. By the end of the 19th century, all these descriptions began to slip down to Italian, Slavs, and Jews. Even now in the, the debate of immigration in America, I'm surprised by people often think these any of these issues are new, that these people can't assimilate. They were talking about the same thing in the 19th century. Roman Catholicism was as maybe more threatening to Anglo-Protestant culture on both sides of the Atlantic than Islam is to us. I think one of the most fascinating things about looking at this book or looking at any book about sort of the early, late 19th, early 20th century about immigration into the United States is the fact that these people are viewed as being members of different races Race. and they're portrayed in cartoons and right. in, even in photographs as being entirely different people. Yet at some point that just goes away. Yes. Um, you know, there's there are three great immigration waves to the United States, really the, the famine immigration from Ireland, which in a 10 year period, you get more immigrants to the United States than you had gotten in the 70 years before that. And it disturbs everything, and the whole East Coast is in an uproar about this immigration. The American Party has formed the largest third-party movement in American history to stop this inundation of Irish Catholics who are changing the culture and debasing the culture and threatening the political stability. And then with the Jewish-Italian-Slavic immigration, you have the second great wave and the second great reaction, which is eugenics, which is a whole theory of racial intelligence and racial personality and racial characteristics. The first quotas on immigration are really heavily influenced by eugenic theory. In 1923 and 24, they restrict immigration to the country, which is also one of the reasons Jews can't get in the, in the country during the Holocaust. And then um, the third great immigration debate is now. It's just that if you know enough, you know, sometimes you read enough history and you say, you just recognize everything. It doesn't change. It's, 
the pattern is there, the names change, the events are a little different, but the kind of basic prototype doesn't really change. You are listening to Fordham Conversations on WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org. I'm Nora Flaherty. My guest today on the show is Peter Quint. Quinn's a Fordham alum, and he is the author of the new book, Looking for Jimmy, A Search for Irish America. It's out now from Overlook Press. Later on the show, Brooklyn resident Kathy Napoli remembers her father's favorite St. Patrick's Day song. But first, let's continue our conversation with Peter Quinn. I asked him what it used to mean to be Irish-American in New York and what it means today. My father, who uh, went to Fordham Law School and was uh, assemblyman and congressman, represented this district in Congress, said to me that he thought being Irish was two things. It was you always root for the underdog and you have a sense of humor. And, you know, I think that comes out of tragic histories, that there was a large element of tragedy in the Irish story. You had a million people come across South Street in, in a 10-year period. And in a, it was the famine immigration was as much a route as an immigration of these people pouring in. And looking how they came into New York and opportunities New York gave them and you know, the pain of their experience and the triumph of their experience. I think it can make you compassionate. I think it can make you hopeful for other immigrant groups coming through. I just don't think this is just an Irish story. One of, one of the things about looking for Jimmy is, you know, when they were in Ireland, they were one people. And the minute they stepped off the boat in on South Street, they were another people. Because nobody who has ever come into New York, you can't just stay what you are. You're always banging up against somebody else. They started banging up you know, first time they ever saw an African-American or interacted with, with Jews or, or anybody else. They had lived in villages where it was unusual to travel more than three miles from your home. And then this, the most rapidly industrializing city. And in a way, I don't think the lessons are just about New York because the process that they went through is going on all over the world. One of the driving dynamics of modern history are people abandoning villages for cities. And they arrive in cities with no skills. They live in the worst housing. They're affected by crime and all sorts of dependencies, drugs and alcohol. All that the Irish went through. They were the vanguard of this proletarian army coming out of agricultural situations into urban situations. Looking for Jimmy isn't just about, I don't think it's just about the Irish experience. I think it's about people who come to cities. How do they survive? How do they remake themselves? What do they find? And what do they go on to? One of the things that you talk about in the book is the difference between the ways that Irish American people dealt with sort of tenement life and communal life and all that when they first arrived and the ways that other groups dealt with it. What were some of the big differences there? One of the simultaneous immigrations with the Irish are the Germans, and Germans tend to pass through New York much quicker than the Irish because this was the experience of my own family. They got to the city. They didn't want to know about the country ever again. The country was, you know... That was a, one thing about the Irish immigration that they were not interested in passing on to. Most of them, especially the famine immigration, they, they never wanted to see the land again. I never heard a good word about farming or, you know, that's all we had been for thousands of years. But they came to the city and they loved the city and they found that the city made them free in, in a way they had never been before as peasants and tenants on other people's properties who worked for other people. You know, my parents and grandparents, they love vaudeville, they love theater, the whole vitality of the city, which the Irish helped make. They just, they they were a swim in it. I think my father didn't leave 
New York State for the last 20 years of his life. They were perfectly happy where they were. You know, other immigrant groups, like if you read descriptions in the 1840s, the Swedes can't wait to get out of New York. And uh, people want to get back to the land. That's why they're coming to America, you know? Like, like, let me get my 160 acres. Some Irish people do go to the land, but they're not part of my book. My book is about the people who got here and like, what, you know, I'm really happy I'm in New York, and this is a great place, and... That's the feeling I grew up with in the Bronx. So I thought I was lucky to be in the Bronx. Uh, I still think I was lucky to be born and raised and educated here. One of the things that you talk about in your book that I, I thought was interesting is the idea that other than blaming the British for it, the famine isn't really something that most Irish Americans like to talk about. Well, yeah. What, what struck me was that my family had come here because of this famine. And what I heard about it as a kid was, you know, oh, the British did it. But there was nothing about what happened to us. I was not interested in the blame, I said, where is this event, this catastrophe, in, the greatest catastrophe in 19th century Europe, is this reflected in behaviors and things? And then, you know, to look at my own families, people went to college, but we were raised to take civil service jobs. You know, the security that the church provided, that you, you had all the answers. And I think having watched their society unravel and collapse, if you then, it began to make sense to me why this accent on security, why this feeling don't take risks, stick with what you know, that it was all not just a historical experience that had taken place 100 years before I was born, but it was woven into how I lived and thought and how my parents reacted. And they had had the added experience of the Depression. So, you know, my father was a, um, he was a very devout practicing Catholic, but equal to his Catholicism was the Democratic Party. He went never to stray from the Democratic Party and the New Deal. I still think of the New Deal as, you know, an Irish American thing that 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 reflected this this sense of you know people get crushed in events and something has to be there to help them and that was that was part of my my experience as as an Irish American that was the heritage that I was given. I was struck by, I guess, a lack of emphasis on remembrance um, that you talked about in your family and in the I guess the Irish American right. community yeah. in general. Well, why give anybody you know this is not just the Irish. It happened, I think. It happens with every group. It happened with slavery. It happened in the Holocaust. It's You don't want to give that to children. It's a humiliating experience. The experience of powerlessness of you can't feed your family and you're thrown off the land and you get on a, you arrive somewhere else where you're a nobody, these are things that people work against, and it's not a useful thing to give your children. It's when generations go on like we've gone on, and now I'm comfortable, I can look back and... I don't have to worry about that powerlessness anymore. That was a fact of life for those immigrants, and that's what they were struggling against. You know, my family was in New York City during the draft riots. There was no folk memory of that. No, why? You wouldn't say, oh, yes, that was when Uncle Fred was on the rooftop firing at the federal troops. <laughs> and who went to prison, you know? Um, who died of alcoholism? We have this great sense of the immigrant experience, and, oh, we all made it. Well, we didn't all make it. Countless numbers fell by the wayside, died as children, died in bad circumstances, uh, were ravaged by unemployment, by alcoholism. But that's not something you want to give your children. You want to make them feel, concentrate on the future. That's why people come to America, not to dwell on the past. I was always tell. my mother was always saying, oh, that's excess baggage. What are you worried about that for? Who wants to know about that? It was like, get on with it. One of my mother's most shocking things that I ever did was when I got married, we moved to Brooklyn, which having grown up in the Bronx, she was like, what are you doing? You're going backwards. <laughs> we should be moving north into America. That's why we're 
here. And, and I, you know, I mean, I understand it. It was a healthy thing in some ways, but uh, I really think individuals and communities, you have to come to, before you can forget the past, you have to come to terms with it. Because one of the things I realized was yeah, all these forces were influencing me in what I believed and how I acted and my expectations. Nobody lives in a vacuum. We live in families, and the families are part of traditions, and those traditions are part of cultures, and those cultures help determine how we act and think and how we raise our children. And I wrote this book to say, you know, just let me take—I'm going to be 60 this August, so let me just take a look back. You talk about your trip to Ireland with your mother and how she's very reluctant to talk about history but suddenly wants to go to Ireland. My father had died in 1974 and I think that was a kind of um, moment for one of the things she had met my father at a, a Lady of Solace dance in the East Bronx in 1928 and had never been without him on St. Patrick's Day and she had the sudden desire to go to Ireland and I, I just think she realized at that point in her life that she could let the defense down a little. You know, and her mother had come out as a contract on a, to be a maid in 1888 from Cork. And she was never interested in investigating that because her mother raised her not to be a maid. And, you know, I always say the, the one thing, and I think this comes out of the famine too, and, uh, you know, the Irish, the way they were so um, colonized and lost their language and things is part of being Irish-American is self-doubt. You're never quite sure about yourself. And I think that is finally, that's part of my generation. I think that's going away. Um, one of the things you talk about in that essay about your and your mother's trip to Ireland is the um, is the fact that the church had burned down and there were no records. There was nothing. And I was I was really struck throughout this book by this really sort of thundering lack of historical records. Well, that's one of the reasons I wound up writing novels. I wrote Banished Children of Eve about the... Um, famine immigration to New York because I originally figured, I'll write a social history and I'll find my family. I could find death certificates and parish things, but, you know, I couldn't find, there were no letters, no, I couldn't find the people except on those official documents and as statistics. I couldn't find the richness of their life and the complexity and density and what they were hoping. And I had to reach that through fiction. And there was this tremendous lack of, of records, you know, I mean, we didn't have a stick of furniture, no physical memory of where we had come from, and a very, very tenuous. I think people have the wrong idea of Irish Americans that they're, you know, really involved in their history, and that was not part of the way I was raised. It was the exact opposite. So there was that there was that lack of a record that made me a novelist, I think. And then it was looking back and saying, I "Want to take one last look, not as a novelist, but as a kind of mixture of memoir and history," and wrote "Looking for Jimmy." What does your family think about your interest in history? Depends on what part of the family. I think some people will not be thrilled. Other people will be thrilled. I have a 20-year-old daughter at Boston College and 17-year-old son in Hastings High School. And, uh, you know, this is part for them. They're certainly not as interested in this stuff as I am. But, you know, you don't know where, where we're going the future is mystery, and one of the great things of writing a book, it's like putting a note in a bottle and tossing it out, and you don't know who's going to find it and read it. Immigrant families in particular, I think, are not, as long as you can tell the great stories of how we succeeded and aren't we great, that's a friend of 30 years is Frank McCourt, and I know um, he took tremendous flack because I think, you know, one of the things of Irish Americans was, well, you tell that in the confessional. <laughs> 
you know, we're a confessional people, but that's behind a curtain. You don't talk about this. And that's part of the defensive image of the Irish. You know, it's like the riots over the playboy of the Western world. We don't let people see who we really are because they think we're drunk and disorderly and we can't tell any of these stories in public. Um, so as as we're talking about this, we're basically talking about something that is now making its way into history, if not already history. And I wonder, unless people have sort of an interest in Irish-American New York, why should they care about what you're writing about here? Well, what, one of the things that I'm trying to say about this book is that, you know, that experience changed the city. It created many things that are still with us, from popular entertainment to politics. So understanding the present, I think, is coming to grips with the past. That's what I believe as a historian and a novelist and what I'm trying to get at in Looking for Jimmy. You know, what What I realized is, because I'm writing so much of the book from a personal perspective, that we live, I think, under the delusion we're free from the past. And the the more we live with by, with that delusion, the more we're controlled by the past, because we're not conscious of what is happening and why we're doing things. And that if you look back and you come to grips with these things and see them for what they really were and the good parts and the bad parts and don't romanticize them, just try to look honestly at it and not deny the ugly parts, you have a better perception of history and you have a better perception of yourself and the society you're part of and its potential to do good and its potential to do bad. Well, Peter Quinn, thanks so much. Thank you, Nora. That was author Peter Quinn. His new book, Looking for Jimmy, is out now from Overlook Press. This is Fordham Conversations on WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org. I'm Nora Flaherty. Ahead this morning on Cityscape, a look at the issues facing young New Yorkers. That's Cityscape this morning at 7.30 with George Bodarkey. But first, Kathy Napoli grew up Irish-American in Brooklyn. Every St. Patrick's Day, her father would get the neighborhood guys to come up to the family's apartment and drunkenly sing Irish songs. The song that she remembers best is Harrigan. That's a song from the 1942 musical Yankee Doodle Dandy, starring Jimmy Cagney. Hi, I'm Kathy Napoli, and I was born and raised in Brooklyn, New York, and I'm of Irish descent. My most memorable song from childhood is an Irish ballad called Harrigan. H-A-R-R-I-G-A-N spells Harrigan. My dad used to sing it, proud of all the Irish blood that's in me. With some of his friends, Dibble man can say a word again me in our living room of our railroad apartment in Park Slope. G-A-N-U-C is a name that a shame never has been connected with. Harrigan, that's me. My dad liked to drink. He didn't mind uh, having a few beers more often than he should. And on St. Patrick's Day in particular, he would go down and find all of the other drinkers in the street, or we used to call them bums. So he used to take the bums up into our apartment, and uh, they would form like a chorus and sing. And they would uh, bring with them green plastic hats and green polka-dotted plastic bow ties and I would be sitting in the middle there's a little girl of, of the couch wearing the green hat and the bow tie and there would be three, four, five men with my father singing Harrigan 
my mom would be in the kitchen preparing dinner for them, which my father demanded that she do. And if he would sing a song, you know, he would be yelling out to her, Hey, Lourdes, is that dinner ready yet? And then she would say choice words to him. And um, uh, my mom didn't enjoy the moment <laughs> because she was annoyed that there was a bunch of strange drunks in her house. And she couldn't, and she really didn't want that. But she put up with it because my dad, my dad could be rough when he was drunk and uh, not so nice to my mom. He also he used to let me stay up late on weekends when there was um, movies on, musicals though. Who is your friend when you find that you need a friend? Harrigan. That's so whenever me. there was a James Cagney like Yankee Doodle Dandy, or there was Fred Astaire. Fred Astaire, as a matter of fact, till today is my favorite performer ever. Harrigan. That's me. Every time I hear Harrigan, it brings back uh, memories of. Um, of what my father taught, taught me about the Irish people and how proud they are and how strong they are, and um, it, it makes me feel pride, pride in where my family came from. Is a name that a shame never has been connected with Harrigan. That's me. One more time now. H A double R G A N spells Harrigan. Proud of all the Irish blood that's in me. Diplomat can say a word again to me. H A double R I G A N U C. Is a name that a shame never has been connected with. Harrigan, that's me. From WFUV, this has been Fordham Conversations. I'm Nora Flaherty. Cityscape is next. Thanks for listening and have a great weekend. As I walked down through Chatham Street, a fair maid I did meet. She asked me to see her home. She lived in Bleecker Street. To me, way, yes, Andy, my dear Andy. Oh, you New Yorkers, kind This is WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org.